Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. You have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Good morning. My name is Adrian Eshelman. My husband, Atlee, and I have been attending LEFC for the past four years, and I have the honor of reading our scripture this morning. I will be reading from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pashan. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat, from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, 
and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Thank you, Adrian. Adrian and her husband, Atlee, are uh, in our life group. They're foster parents, ABF leaders, and very dear friends of ours. So um, thank you for reading that. And what Adrian just read from was not written to us to be a science or a history textbook, although science and history both submit to it. It is written from our communicating God who has spoken to us. It's his living and active word. How One of the ways that he relates to us. Now, next month, the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology is releasing another study that talks about how much our devices prevent us and can keep us from relating to each other. And yet many of us relate with our God through his written word only through a device that is constantly trying to distract us. Now, (laughs) there's nothing wrong with reading the word this way, but if you found that you have had trouble hearing God's voice from his word because your device might distract you. Our ushers have a, an old school technology. It's been used a few times before. It's called a paperback Bible, and it won't notify you. You can't get a text message from it, but you can hear God's voice through it. So if you'd like one of those this morning, you can flag them down. But either way, whether you read it through this or through something else, you can go ahead and turn or flip or click to Genesis chapter 2. That's where we'll be reading from. Now, what Adrian just read from chapter 2 is essentially a zoomed-in account of what we read last week in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, is a a summary of sorts of then what we see in greater detail when we get to chapter 2. So if you weren't here last week, we're going to reread what we read there to kind of set the stage for what we're going to see as we get into today's text. This is in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, last week's sermon was titled Imago Day." Today, our sermon is titled Imago Day Part 2. Again, because there's such a strong connection between what we see in chapter 1 and what we're going to get into here in chapter 2. Now, if you weren't here, this term, Imago Day is it's a doctrinal term. And it's Latin for image of God. It's pulled out of verse 27 here. And 
there's a lot of different ways that we could explain this doctrine, but we're gonna try and keep it simple and just explain it in two parts. So this doctrine of Imago Dei, part one of this doctrine is it, it describes human nature, which are those things, those aspects about us in which we're made different from the other things that God created, different from the creatures and the fish and the things that crawl along the ground that we read there. And it's also the aspects of us that allow us to rule over those things. So parts of our nature could include things like our, um, our, our rationality, the ability to use logic or reason. It can also be our, our character, those attributes of God that we reflect him, those things, that, uh, things like being able to love or being able to pursue holiness. It can also describe our will, our ability to make decisions and act according to our rationality and our character. Now, because of sin, which we'll get to in Genesis 3 next week, the world is filled with people who are both immoral and irrational. But the very fact we can look at something occurring and think, man, that was really stupid, is actually evidence of the Imago Dei doctrine. Because animals can't judge one another and make that evaluation. They don't have the character and they don't have the rationality in order to make those sorts of judgments. So that's it. That's the doctrine of Imago Dei summarized in a nutshell. It just means that we're different than a coconut or a dung beetle or other things that God created. We have a nature that reflects God and the ability to carry out purposes that he's laid for us. Now, part two, part two of this doctrine is, is describes not just our nature, but also the fact that we are called to specific purposes, in fact, we see a little bit about what those purposes look like in verse 28, where God gives us a charge to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. We could summarize those things as saying that God's purpose for humanity is to use our nature in order to pursue human flourishing or more broadly flourishing among all the creation. So those two things, our human nature and also our, our call or our purpose is what we can pull out of Genesis chapter one. So now looking again here at verse 27, it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now last week, we made the observation that in this verse, God says three times, created, 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 in order to underscore that God was was very intimately involved in the creation of mankind. We can also see another pattern here, three times, a little bit different though, where it says that he created in his image, in his image, male and female. You see, in the collective wisdom of the Godhead, humanity was designed in two different parts, male and female. In a minute, we're gonna look at chapter two, verse 18, where it says it was not good for the man to be alone. Text many of us are familiar with. And that text could, could literally be translated as it is not good for man to be a part. Meaning not good for him to be singular. Humanity was designed into be two parts. And those two parts together form the complete image. And you'll notice that as we look in chapter one, which again is the summary of what we're gonna learn in chapter two, 
Nowhere does God give us any distinctions between men and women except for the fact that they've got two different names, male and female. In verse 28, it says that God blessed them. God said to them and then gave them both together a charge what the purpose of their humanity is for. Now, in chapter two, we are gonna get into some distinctions, but here in chapter one, God only highlights our sameness, the sameness between men and women. And we kind of have to ask, well, why would this, why might this be? And it might be that it's because our sameness is more important than our distinctions. Now, I realize that we're looking at this text in a cultural context where we are being surrounded by gender confusion in every angle. I realize that, but I just want us to consider for a second how this, how this text, God's word that he established long ago, might sound to believers who might be in a different context than us. Consider what this might sound like to one of our sisters who might be living in a place like Syria or Afghanistan or Iran where women hold next to no value. Or for a woman who might have been rescued out of human trafficking, being mistreated by men for her entire life. And when she opens up this text, she sees here that God at the beginning of his divine revelation shows us in unparalleled and unequivocal, in an unparalleled and unequivocal way that mankind is made in his image, in his image, male and female. And what an encouragement that would be, that he designed humanity equal in dignity and purpose and nature and two different parts. Now, in the fuller story that we're going to get into here in chapter 2, we will start to see some distinctions between male and female. And this shouldn't surprise us because he did use two different words, right? He's used male and used female. But as we dig into chapter 2, I just want us to keep this summary statement in mind because it undergirds what we're going to read. And then before we jump in, I just want to give you a quick summary or a heading that I would put over what we're going to see in chapter 2. And the heading is this that each, male and female, each is an image, but together they're a portrait. Each an image, together a portrait. Meaning that our distinctions are not there to divide us, but in order to fit together for the purposes that God has called us to, specifically the type of flourishing that we see here in verse 28. All right, so with that in mind, let's dig in. We're gonna jump into Genesis chapter two. And we're starting in verse four, which says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now you might be asking why we're starting in verse four rather than verse one, and it's because the book of Genesis, as God wrote it, is divided into distinct parts. And we know that in verse four, we're beginning a, a new part because you'll see that it says at the beginning, this is the account of. This is the account of, that's a marker. If you flip over a page to Genesis five, verse one, you'll also see it say, this is the written account of. And as we go through Genesis, you're gonna see 10 different times it says something like this is the account of or these are the genealogies of. And those are markers in the text to help us understand that God is about to focus on maybe a slightly different thing. He might have a slightly different purpose for the text that we're in. 
So now, up until this point in the series, we've been in what's called the prologue. It's before those 10 parts. And just to point out how God might use these parts differently, as we read through the prologue, we saw that God used a specific name for himself. Now, in English, we translate it as God. But as we read through chapter one, if you had saw it in Hebrew, it would be the the Hebrew word Elohim. Now, Elohim in Hebrew is meant to, to magnify God's power and his majesty. And that is the type of thing, the type of work that we see in the creation account in chapter one. But in, in, in verse four here of chapter two, we see the, the name take a slight shift. It's easy to miss, but there at the second half of verse four, you'll see that it says, the Lord God. Slightly different than God, the Lord God. And if you look a little closer, you'll see that Lord is actually in all capital letters, which is the English way that we translate God's personal name. In Hebrew, this is the word Yahweh. Now, Yahweh, it communicates God's uh, personal interaction, his intent to relate with mankind. We hear it for one of the, one of the, the most important times that we hear this is actually in, the, in Exodus, which is written by, as, as well as Genesis, both written by Moses, all right? So Moses being the author here of Genesis, he hears God tell him his name for the first time when he came to him in the form of fire in a bush that didn't burn. This is where God tells him, I am. And then he goes on to say, say to the Israelites, the Lord God, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation, Yahweh. So while in the prologue in chapter one, God uses a name that highlights his power, as we get into chapter two, God is highlighting his his personal intent for mankind, that he intends to relate with us in the same way that he relates with Moses, in the same way that he relates with Adam. And then next what we see as we work through chapter two is what this relationship begins to look like. Now, even though man is made in the image of God, Because we are different than God, the way that God relates to us is different than the way that we relate to him. What chapter two is gonna show us is that one of the ways that God relates to us is that he provides for us. He is our provider. And we're gonna look at quickly at six different things in this chapter that were not only true for Adam, but true for us, ways that God provides for mankind. Now, if you're, you're taking notes, these might be something you want to jot down because we're going to move through them pretty quickly. Six things that God provides in his relationship with us. The first one we see here in Genesis 2-7. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So the first thing we see God providing for man is life. It says here that he formed Adam, which is very personal language. This would, be, would bring to mind for a Hebrew reader the idea of a potter forming the clay. It's very personal. It's very hands-on. And then it says he breathes into his nostrils. Again, uh, what comes to mind for me would be like, uh, like giving somebody CPR, 
Like you gotta be pretty up close and personal and in their business to do that. And that's what we see God doing with us. He is forming us. He is molding us and he is breathing into us. He is personally involved from the very beginning. That's number one, life. Number two, verse eight. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So here we see God providing Adam with a home, a home in Eden. Verse nine. Verse nine says, the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In this verse, we see two different things that God provides. One is that he provides food, and the second is that he provides pleasure. Now that second one, we could also potentially derive from the name of the garden itself because the Hebrew word for Eden can also mean delight. So in a lot of ways, the the home that God provides for Adam and eventually Eve could be called the garden of delight. These are two more things that God provides for man. Reading further. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So the next thing we see God provide for Adam is is purposeful and satisfying work. And this work, this this task is part part of how he fulfills his calling of ruling over and subduing and cultivating creation. This work comes before the fall, meaning that the work itself is good. Work is good. Teenagers. Verse 16, verse 16 says, and the Lord God commanded them, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, we have to ask ourselves what's happening here because it feels a little bit different and you might think that God here is putting a temptation in the garden and that is not at all what's happening. You see, we've been looking at this theme of God relating to man and providing for man. He provides him with life, a home, work, pleasure, food, and this fits right along with it. But what God is providing here is is an opportunity for Adam to relate with God. All right, so we had said that God and man, they relate to each other differently. God relates to man, at least as described it here, through providing But here, man is revealed to man that man relates to God through trust. God here is calling Adam into a relationship and that relationship will be one based on trust. Now, if you want some New Testament language to apply to this, you could say that this is the first time that God is calling man to have faith. Six things, life, home, food, pleasure, work, and a relationship with God. These are the things that God gives to Adam. These are the things that God gives to us in order to, for us through our nature, in order to fulfill the purposes that he's called us to in Genesis chapter one. We praise God from whom these blessings flow. But in scripture, the number six means incomplete. Here we see that Adam is missing A seventh thing, in his image, in his image, male and female. The woman is missing. 
Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now remember our summary or our outline, each an image together a portrait. And this day six story that we're building out, that was told last week and we're building out in further detail this week has been building with growing anticipation of this part being fulfilled. So God has been providing for humanity, but here in verse 18, we pivot from all the thing God, things that God provides to the completion of humanity as we read in chapter one. So we're shifting from individual now to portrait language, looking at the male and female together. And the first thing that we see is that it is not good for the man to be alone. Now we need to pause here so that we don't miss the point of what is being communicated by God. You see, this chapter, as Adrian read, is moving towards marriage. That's the picture that we're seeing here. But that does not mean that the alone here means singleness. It does not. Singleness is not not good. The alone here is because Adam is only a part of humanity. At this point in the story, even though we're growing in anticipation, he's missing the other part. So although he has a nature that is made in the image of God, and and there's many good things we can see God expressing through Adam's nature up until this point, Adam's maleness is only one way through which God intends to have that nature expressed. The beauty of a portrait also requires female expression. And even though that God has provided many of the things that Adam needs in order to fulfill the purpose of pursuing human flourishing and flourishing of creation, if Eve does not come, we would soon see that he is ill-equipped for that purpose. Men and women, regardless of marital status, are designed to depend on one another as we pursue human flourishing together. Hannah Anderson describes this concept of fitting together like this. She says, one of the most obvious examples of this mutual dependence is found in our physical bodies, in our biological male and femaleness. Our bodies themselves teach us that we are meant to work cooperatively for the good of each other and for the broader community. In fact, the very differences between us are given to enable us to steward the earth and to be fruitful and multiply in both a literal and an archetypal sense. What she's saying here is that as we discuss the distinctions between men and women, either in the church or in the family, those distinctions are not there in order to have us contend with one another. Instead, they're there to help us see how we're supposed to fit together for the purposes that God has called us to. You see, God has equipped women to rule and to reign and to multiply in ways that are distinct from men but also as the perfect counterpart to men and vice versa. That works both ways. In verse 18, we start to see the first concrete distinction. It says, 
I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, some concepts are, are difficult to, to articulate well. And in these times, we can go to people who are greater thinkers than we are. So I wanna read to you a quote from Tim Keller, who was one of these great thinkers. On this concept in this verse, he says this, the English word helper is not the best translation for the Hebrew word ezer. Helper connotes merely assisting someone who could do the task almost as well without help. But Ezer is almost always used in the Bible to describe God himself. Other times, it's used to describe military help, such as reinforcements without which a battle would be lost. To help someone then is to make up what is lacking in him with your strength. Male and female are like two pieces of a puzzle that fit together because they are not exactly alike nor randomly different. I'm sure many of you have experienced this. I, I experience this frequently. This, this sermon, and like every sermon I've ever preached, has had input and feedback from both men and women, without which it would have been incomplete. Even the quote I just read came uh, one morning while I was sitting trying to study and work on this, and my wife just slides a book across the desk with a little bookmark in it. Doesn't say much. Just says, hey, maybe you should give this one a read. And, uh, and it helps clarify and, and make the sermon complete. Without each other, without brother and sister in the church, even our works of ministry would be incomplete. We need each other. We were designed for each other. And if you find yourself single for whatever reason, it has zero effect on your capacity to live out the purposes that we find there in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Because when we say each an image, but together a portrait... Marriage is just one of the portraits, but it's not the only one. That is how God uses some. But today, this, the church, the, the worship team, male and female worshiping together, this is another portrait and perhaps one of the best ones we have of what eternity might look like. And let's consider for a second how scripture reveals this to us because we have plenty of examples we have the example of Moses who leads God's people across the Red Sea. God brings total victory and then Moses leads the people in praise. And then right with him, Miriam joins in, leading all the women to sing and dance and celebrate with the tambourine. Each, they're a different image, but together they form a portrait of praise. Deborah, the judge, exhorted Barak to go and fight God's enemies. And then she follows with him to the very front lines. Then Barak leads the armies of God down the hill. God brings total victory. So each very different image, but together they form a portrait of faith. You might remember Peter falling at the feet of Jesus and saying to him, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And then shortly after, we see a sinful woman fall at his feet, weeping, washing his feet with her long hair and tears and perfume, each an image, but together a portrait of humble repentance. Mary, she was the first to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And then Peter, soon after, the first to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to the nations and to the church. Each an image, but together a portrait of proclaiming the gospel. And this idea with sameness, but distinction permeates every aspect of scripture and every aspect of our church and of our families. We all strive by God's grace to let the fruit of the spirit flow through us. It flows through our maleness and our femaleness. As Greg Allison succinctly concludes, he says, men and women uniquely express common human traits as men and women. And this shines especially bright when we live out our calling together. Each an image, together a portrait. All right, get back, getting back to our text here. At this point in our text, it takes a decisive turn towards marriage. This doesn't make marriage the ultimate aim, but God does use the marriage of one man and one woman in order to reveal unique things and accomplish unique purposes. Now, this wedding story begins with Adam naming the animals, knowing them and naming them, giving them each a name as they parade before him. This is sort of like a, like a bridal party parading before him. And I apologize if you're going to be a bridesmaid coming up here. It's, uh, it's maybe not the most glorifying picture, but, but that's what we see here, the beginning of a wedding. Then in verse 22, we see, we see it say, Then the Lord God, again, Yahweh Elohim, made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So here we see Eve made. And we, we noticed last week that she's not made like Adam or the animals. They were both formed from the ground. She's formed from a rib. Now, as we looked earlier, the language of God forming Adam is the language of a potter forming clay, intimately involved. And I think what we might see here is as if God is taking off a piece of that original lump in order to form something that is totally distinct, and yet, yet they are one in both nature and purpose. And then once made, we see God the Father bring this new bride down the aisle to her groom. At which point we see the bridegroom break out in poetry. He says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Here, Adam is expressing his love for his wife by knowing her and honoring her with a name that corresponds to his. We, we read it as man and woman in English, but in Hebrew, this is <clears throat> Ish and Isha. Her very name reveals that she is the feminine version of him and the perfect counterpart. So perfect that it says in verse 25, <clears throat> or verse 24, the man is united to his wife and they become one flesh. You know, what happens in the marriage covenant is it's truly a mystery, the covenant between one man and one woman. Later, Jesus will add to this that God is at work joining the two together that they might become one flesh. While there's some mystery, this, this can teach us about how we're to operate within marriage. Husbands, one flesh means that your maleness is for your wife. 
to help her live out her femaleness as you both pursue fruitfulness and increase and life together. And wives, your femaleness is for your husband to help him live out his maleness as you both pursue fruitfulness and increase and life together. I mean, this is what the very marriage bed teaches us. Whole self-giving within the context of a covenant relationship, a covenant union through which God joins us together. And sometimes we even see this bearing the literal fruit of multiplication, of bearing children. This is the doctrine of Imago Dei being applied to marriage. That's what we see here. And what was their marriage like? We see this in verse 25. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. See, these two lovebirds, they never did anything wrong. In marriage counseling, we talk about all the baggage that we bring to marriage, right? These are the only two the only two people in all of history who did not bring baggage into their marriage. And at least until the fall, they didn't create any new baggage. I mean, imagine what this relationship must have been like. No dysfunction, no self-protection, no hiding. They were in a true garden of delight as they lived in unity with each other and in dependence on God. What we see here is a picture of oneness, the oneness between man and woman and the covenant of marriage as they live in oneness with our creator. Now, I don't know about you, but my wife and I started sowing seeds for future marriage counseling sessions pretty early in marriage before probably we even made it back from the honeymoon. And this is a common experience, right? You may be sitting here thinking, okay, we're gonna talk about marriage as a portrait, a portrait of spiritual things, but it's a little difficult for me to think of a marriage that actually paints a good portrait. And probably if you can think of a few, you just don't know them that well. It's it's important for us to keep in mind where we're at in the story. You see, we're reading in Genesis chapter two. And sin doesn't arrive until Genesis chapter three. And when it does, it distorts absolutely everything. But the fact that sin arrives in Genesis three does not diminish the relevance of Genesis chapter two. As Jackie Hill Perry recently said, she said, the Bible doesn't begin with sin, it begins with God. So here today, Genesis two is speaking to us from God what we might be, what we were meant to be, the purposes that we were meant to fulfill and the type of flourishing we were meant to pursue. This is what we can hear God speaking, and he's speaking them to us today because he's not done yet. You see, our God is not just in the business of creating, he is in the business of recreating, meaning that what seems to be ruined or what seems to be unrecoverable, even in the darkest corners of your life, he can restore. Genesis 2 teaches us that there, is, that there is hope for our broken selves and there is hope for our broken relationships. And that, and that hope is found in what marriage is a portrait of. You see, God designed the covenant of marriage to show us what it means for him to be 
a covenant God. Our world is filled with millions of portraits that are all pointing to a spiritual truth. And just as marriage begins with covenant vows, the covenant with God, this relationship with God also has terms, which we already talked about. The terms are God provides and man trusts. But next week, we're gonna see the beginning of a pattern of mankind rejecting the terms of the relationship. And we will do this over and over and over again. We're happy to take the things that God provides. We're happy to take the life. We're happy to take the home. We're happy to take the food and the pleasure and the relationships. And yet we reject him, the one who provides it all. But there's good news for this. You see, unlike most earthly marriages, the church has a relentless groom who gave up everything to bring us back. For his bride, the groom left his home in heaven in order to come and live without a place to lay his head. For his bride, the groom went without food for 40 days while doing battle with Satan. For his bride, the groom left the heavenly host behind to come and live. And in his time of greatest need, have all his closest disciples and closest friends abandon him and flee. He came knowing that it would cost him his life. As it says, he would be delivered into the hands of men and they would kill him. And his death would be a death on the cross. It says he endured the cross, despising the shame. His clothes were divided into the lots, which means that for his bride, at this, at this time of greatest giving, he hung on the cross naked, publicly shamed, without dignity and without agency. But it was not in vain. Because in the end, it says of his work, he said of his work, that it is finished. And that work is what all marriages are meant to be a portrait of, that there is a new covenant between God and man, this one in the blood of Jesus Christ. As it says in Ephesians 5, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. You see, the two becoming one flesh is a portrait of our sins being imputed to him and of his righteousness being imputed to us, which means that for his bride, what Christ has accomplished, he has, he has brought to fruition this, this state of union with him so that when God looks down and sees our sinful adultery, our turning away from Christ, what he actually sees is Christ's righteousness. And when God looks down and sees that we have rebelled and turned away, he sees that, that, our, that the wrath for what we have done has been satisfied by Christ on the cross. This is the type of union we have with our Savior. We have become one with him so that our sins are paid by him and his righteousness is now placed on us. 
And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and enter into this covenant union, he cleaves to us. He holds fast to us. He unites with us with a permanence that no one can undo, not even us. And it's through this union that we can obtain the highest form of the purpose that we are called to, human flourishing. And this flourishing is not just in this life, but it is eternal life. So like Adam, we are asked to enter into this covenant relationship by faith. Adam was called to express his faith by not eating from the forbidden tree. We are called to express our faith by eating from the bread of life. And this is not a one-time decision, but it's an eternal relationship. As we abide in him, he will restore in us all that we're gonna see lost next week in Genesis 3 which means that every profession of faith, every baptism, every step of sanctification represents someone who was made in the image of God being restored into the image of Christ as God multiplies his image to the ends of the earth. And this is why we share the gospel with our neighbors and within our oikos. This is why we plant churches. This is why we send people to the ends, the very ends of the earth. Because God is not done with what he set out to do in the beginning. He is still multiplying his image across this globe to his glory. He is restoring what was lost and he won't stop until it is done. And he does it through mankind who is in his image, in his image, male and female. So men and women, there's no higher purpose and there's no greater joy than to live this way. So let us not grow weary of living for the glory of God with every ounce of our being and through our maleness and our femaleness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are just amazed what you have revealed to us, what you speak to us in new ways every single day, Lord. It is a joy and the source of, of all of our purpose and being. We, we find it in you, Lord. And I pray for those who are in this room who maybe haven't heard the, their purpose for existence until this morning, Lord. I pray that by your spirit, you have revealed to them that you have a purpose that is higher than they could ever have imagined. You have a plan for their life that you set before creation. And Lord God, that you are inviting them in to a covenant eternal relationship with you. Lord God, let us all gladly receive with trust what you provide. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, let's stand together. Conclude this morning with these words.
So this idea of God restoring and recreating might be new for you. So I, if it is, I wanna leave you with one more portrait to think about in the days ahead. In Genesis 2, verse 10, starting in verse nine, actually it says, in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden from there, it was separated into four headwaters. And then we see those rivers that go out into all the ancient world. That's Genesis chapter two, the second chapter of God's revelation. This one I'm gonna read is from Revelation 22, the last chapter of God's revelation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God, and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. We're headed towards something even greater than what we see in Genesis chapter two. I hope this portrait can paint you, I hope this, this can paint a portrait that will inform how you live, how you work, and how you pray. If, if there are things in your life that need to be restored, we have people in our encounter room to my left that would love to pray with you and pray for God to begin to bring that, res that restoration that he will complete one day. And my encouragement to you then as you leave, is to trust in him. Trust that he will equip you through your nature for the purposes that he, is, that he has planned for you to carry out, that he has planned for you since eternity past. And I encourage you to do this not alone. Don't, don't accept a life of loneliness. That is not God's intention for his people. Do it together with the brothers and sisters of this church as you live out in the fullness of your maleness and your femaleness. With that, I say go in peace. You are dismissed.